you know, as an adult, you should be wearing a backpack. You know, <laughs> you, sh you should be carrying a satchel. You should be held in a briefcase. You know, oh, only children have backpacks. As designers, we are trained to practice extreme empathy for humans and use that insight to craft experiences for people. Today, I'd like to introduce you to Dre Pennycook, a friend and design leader who leads with heart. Dre is currently the design director for Vero Money, a mission-driven bank for the 99%. Before hitting it big in fintech, Dre was a bigwig New York City art director for AMC Networks leading award-winning marketing for shows like Mad Men, The Walking Dead, and Breaking Bad. An immigrant from Jamaica and alum of super-famous art school Cooper Union, Dre Pennycook has been steeped in the design world on both coasts in marketing and product design for a good minute. So Dre, welcome to Drag and Drop. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm actually kind of tired. I mean, just, you know, dealing with uh, what's going on in the world right now. Mm -hmm. um, I think every black person is a little tired and some white people too. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's just a lot going on in the news, a lot going on in the streets. Mm -hmm. um, and also in our design community as well, too. We're starting to see a lot of articles come out and news things popping up. You know, Twitter's going a little crazy as well. So, yeah, I feel emboldened a little mm -hmm. bit by all of this. As a person of color, as a queer person, I feel very much so that there is more headspace and more room for us to communicate what we have been wanting to say for a long time and, and voice our concerns that have been, you know, banging around our private conversations. And now it's you know, a public on podcasts and things. Well, it's, it's interesting that it's taken COVID and George Floyd for mm -hmm. a lot of this stuff to pop up. I mean, for a lot of us who've experienced this time and time again, it's nothing new. It's quite mm -hmm. nothing new for, for a lot of us who've seen police brutality, who've you know, been chased around Central Park by somebody trying to call the cops on us. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a daily operation. It's just right now it's just trending. Mm -hmm. And I think a good thing is, is that folks are having these conversations now. But my biggest concern is um, four weeks from now, you know, what's the next big thing? And it will just be swept onto the carpet and, you know, forgotten about a little bit until something else happens. So yeah. I, I said to my, my team, actually, I said, you know, we got to do something about this um, and let's try to do it in a way that's sustainable because mm -hmm. um, it's going to, it's going to require a certain amount of sacrifice. We have to put systems in place. We have to start making actions that will take place over a period of time, like five years, et cetera, or more. Mm -hmm. Not something to try to do right now, that some hashtag or blacking out your Instagram feed, which, mm -hmm. you know, which is, all right, great. We speak about it now, but what about five years from now? What about the next generation? What about making some real shit happen? Mm -hmm. um, we have mm -hmm. to put things in place to make that happen. Do you feel like there is a sort of cadence and vocabulary set and a tone that is unspoken and what would you call that sort of way of speaking for design leaders in the Bay Area? Oh, I, I don't know what you would call it. But, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> but if you listen, if you literally like spend the time that I've spent watching these videos, attending these conferences and just listening to people, how they yeah. speak mm -hmm. and what's the most important part and how they defer certain answers and sort of use that, you know, it's almost like this Kung Fu of, uh, 
you know, let me tell you of how successful and how when I failed, it was a learning opportunity. And <laughs> let me, you know, if we, we speak about diversity, like, oh, yeah, we're, we're making great strides. And right, they, right. they will just kind of go in and say, yeah, no, we, we, we're kind of messing up and we, we honestly need to do better. And no, no one really speaks here with a certain amount of truth. It's really how you kind of design your conversation. Um, which <laughs> I, I quite honestly, I'm not very good at that. I'm, it's something that I'm learning to get better at, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I don't, I, I, I speak the truth, man. I, I just come, I come correct the best way I know how. And it, yeah, I'm even like this on my interviews. When people interview me, I, I have the hardest time code switching into the, you know, the good Negro who's quite successful. And <laughs> like, I, I, I lose it like five, what, five minutes into the conversation. I start, yeah. I start being real. I start saying how certain <laughs> things are fucked up. And yeah, cause that's who I am, you know, quite honestly. I have a hard time code switching into the well-behaved model minority, hardworking Chinese man. <laughs> Cause I'm not that always I'm a lot louder and more, I'm much more outspoken than that. You know? So you're not good at math. Oh my God. Oh, oh, oh. my God. I have nightmares about Kumon. Do you know about Kumon? <laughs> oh, I know about Kumon. <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ, mom. <laughs> she was trying. She was trying, but oh. I had to really work on like not saying the F word every single interview time recollection as it's like, this is the, the spice of my life. She's just say, like, fuck this and fuck that. Oh, you know, it's, but it's not just the fact that you're using certain expletives It's what you speak about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'd say in the Bay, a lot of folks have designed their conversations around what is really important. Mm-hmm. And if something diverges from that, how do I give certain non answers so I can diverge back to, you know, just showing how important X, Y, and Z is. I want to name this yeah. cadence. I, I want to call it the Stanford hop. Like Stanford hop. Like there's this mm. this way they teach you in Stanford, right? It's just like, and mm. then I did this, and then I did that, and then I went to Netflix, and then I was, you know, VP, and I was a founder, and this whole thing, like you said. Yeah. How about how about we call it life is a pitch? Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. You're always doing your little elevator speech every time you're you're meeting people. <laughs> yeah, or life's a pitch, something life's like that. A, life's a pitch. Life's a pitch. That's how we. That's how we're <laughs> supposed to talk, right? That's that's going to be my podcast, by the way. Life's a pitch. <laughs> life's a pitch. <laughs> <laughs> oh God in heaven. So yeah. No, but I, you're right. I don't want to talk like that. It's so annoying. It's so, it's yeah. hard not to, um, because quite honestly, people make you feel, especially in the Bay that you're not valuable if you don't have that type of story or come mm-hmm. across that way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If I can't speak about the analytics of the app I worked on, then, um, well, you're not that important, you know, are you? We, yeah, we can't change people's perceptions. You just kind of have to just be you and just speak loudly. And that's why I'm, you know, much love to what you're doing with this platform because it's important to put that out there in the world. We're trying. Thank you. you know, I know. I know what I know what Spring's all about, man. You know, she she'll talk my ear off about some <laughs> topics, and I'm just like, go in, girl, go in. And and I just love how somewhat militant she could be because I'm just like, damn, man, I could I should be doing more. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, so. I think there is a price to pay to be to doing more, you know. And I feel I have definitely suffered for it, but you have to be you. Know, you have to live your truth, and there I there's definitely a monetary attachment to having high ethical and moral standards there just is oh no, no and you know <laughs> i'm i i know that I would be much further in my career if, if i wasn't such a fucking pain in the ass 
militant lesbian, you know, anti-racist attempting to be an anti-racist mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, trying to open the door behind me for others. Like that is so key to my perception of my, my role in this world. So, you know, speaking of all of that, we just would really love to know your thoughts on how in your life, your, your experience as a, a black man, how has that contributed to all these different facets? Um, wow. That's, that's, that's deep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's 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 hard to think about being um how does being black and being a designer on a daily basis how does that all come together because i just i just design i'm just a designer mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. i think more about the people that i'm trying to design for mm-hmm. um and i love that my team comes from all different backgrounds they're all you know ethnic make different ethnic makeups um which is great i'm used to spaces where i'm the only one that looks like me yeah um, mm-hmm. especially within design i show up at events i show up at conferences yeah. and you can count yeah how many black people are there um, on one <laughs> exactly. hand sometimes yeah, maybe two it's very it's very rare to see us and i've it's const- it's constantly this nor- this buzz in the back of my head but when i do my work when i sit down to solve these problems or to current type or what have you. Yeah. Um, I'm not thinking about the black experience when, mm. I'm, <laughs> when I'm doing a layout, but yeah, right. I do think about it when a CEO or an executive says, Oh, can we add more diversities to this layout? Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm always like in the back of my head, I'm like, just, just ask him what they mean, Jerry. Like, you mean more black people? More right. People? Like just, go at them but they're, they're really just referring to like there's not enough black people on this you know it's usually yeah. it's usually just white women or white folks who are usually in these sort of um you know sort of stock photos or what mm-hmm. have you um so <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm reaching back to my old designer visual designer days that's why totally totally i think in my my black man experience i usually try to stop and say am i thinking about who i'm trying to serve here um, I try to elicit as much empathy as I can, but quite honestly, we all have our own biases. I know I bring my biases to work every day. Um, sure. So I try to check myself by having having my team check myself, you know, check me. And yeah, I have research yeah. to lean on as well. I have analytics and I have actual customers that we put things in front of. So The window of conversation that we're having has been expanded to include race and inequality in, in everyday conversation. And now, now it's affecting you know the design world and i love it because i'm like wait is design really um a tool of white supremacy as we're practicing it that's a that's a good question to to often ask yourself Mm -hmm. um a lot of our systems have been put into place quite honestly are racist i mean bmi think about that Mm -hmm. um bmi oh i am a Please, I'm sorry to cut you off. No, 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 no. Please go on, Bay. No, I'm an East Asian man. My BMI is not the same as what. It, right, but come on. But think about how BMI was created. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kinele, who I'm, I'm probably massacring his name. You know, he measured measured people in Belgium. You know, to get the you know to get his <laughs> like the the perfect human being, the, the sort mm-hmm. of uh, the standard. So those individuals that were used as data mm-hmm. to create a system that we still use today, you've got to say, hey, wait a minute, 
this this guy didn't go to Africa. He didn't he didn't go to Asia. He didn't go to all these other places to measure people. So how can you take take these statistics, these statistical models mm-hmm. and create a system that was what created in the 1700s yeah. and yeah. use it for people today? Uh, I just have to question what what is the average human? Um, so yeah, systems like BMI, you know, um, other design systems uh, such as <laughs> you know um, Robert Moses creating bridges too low to stop folks who are using uh, public transportation to not get have access to certain neighborhoods. Mm. Um, mm. And if you look up Robert Moses, he's he's a, he's an amazing individual in terms of racism and using that to create systems that Whoa. are still in place today. Um, wow, I didn't know that. It's like redlining for buses. Yeah, no, I mean, there's also, uh, I'm not sure if this is true or not. Um, I have to research it, but some of the parks that Robert Moses actually helped, helped created, yeah. um, the ones in black neighborhoods have monkeys apparently um, <laughs> in, in some of the ironwork. I'm after. Oh my god! I need to take a look. Throw them. Might, that, my mind. <laughs> yeah, but Robert Moses is a super racist guy, mm-hmm. and he almost destroyed New York City with uh, you know paving it over to make it into super highways. Um, wow. So hmm. when we say, you know, what is the ideal design? What is the ideal layouts? Um, a lot of these systems, yeah, were created by, you know, white men back in the day. I mean, I just don't hear anything about the long heritage of Arabic and Asian typefaces. I don't get to, I didn't learn that going to school here. And I didn't learn to appreciate or flex that. And it makes me actually very sad because I am an Asian person. And I'm yeah. bicultural and I don't, in, I don't like my previous question, I don't infuse my Chineseness into type design as much as I would love to. I just didn't learn it. And I, and I'm learning it now as a, as a, as a practitioner, but I wish I knew mm-hmm. it better coming up and I wish I appreciated it more, you know? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I, at Cooper Union, I was lucky enough to have uh, <laughs> one black teacher <laughs> um, who was an adjunct um, gentleman by the name of Saki Mufundakawa. Um, he actually put together a book actually in the history of African typefaces. And he studied at Yale actually with Paul Rand. And um, yeah, if you can get it, it's, it's really hard to find. But he's got a, he's got a great TED Talk. Um, he's actually lectured here in, in the Bay Area as well, too. Amazing, amazing individual. Um, and he, tell, he told some great stories about going to school and having Paul Rand as a teacher and and quite honestly, they were trying to, I would say, like in most systems, they're trying to push on him. I mean, he, he tells a story better about what is considered, you know, high African mm-hmm. art, you know, whether it be the mass, not the typography. Um, I'm, I'm totally massacring the story. But when I had him as a professor and him telling the stories of, have, you know, folks mm-hmm. hiding written language because they would be killed for it it just it just tells you like wow like there is like some history behind this why why am i been taught this in school why am i only learning about western typography and what's so important where is the you know where's the african the asian and all these other cultures that make up this multicultural world so i started my own journey i actually um, i'm a big anime head um i started learning japanese um, but I also started learning, you know, learning how to write and read. Um, and that took me yeah. down a different journey. I started seeing things completely different. Um, how I think about things, yeah. you know, it's not just, you know, car, I think of a Kuruma, which is 
you know, how you say in Japanese and things. It, mm. I don't know, it, it opened my mind and it made me a bit more aware. So it's like, wow, I was only thinking one way. Um, but I'm, you know, being Jamaican, um, mm-hmm. my whole cultural identity, like my food, how I speak to my family, that that comes out in mm. how I treat people as well. I just wish I, I knew a better way of infusing design you know, with that sort of love and, and color and culture as well. I need to, I, actually, I need to be better about it. And I think we need to allow the design students that are coming up in the world, have them bring their full selves and their cultural identities and teach them how they can design better using that as well. So, I agree. I think that there is a bit of a muting that happens as we come through school and we get sort of, col- I'll say this word, it might be controversial, but we get, nice. you know, colonized. <laughs> through our design vocabulary and our design references. And I'm like, well, can everybody be part of the conversation? And I know that you've shared off air a lot of article, that article mm-hmm. you shared with us, uh, the history. I think it was something that I, again, I feel bad that we never mm-hmm. learned that. But you bring up an interesting point. You had the the guy who was, uh, what was his name again? The, Saki Mafundakawa. Yeah, Saki. Saki Mafundakawa. So, Mr. Mafundakawa, being a part of your formative education there, I feel like we, we should all be so lucky, right? So, as as a design leader now, do you find mm-hmm. yourself trying to hire or, and I think you mentioned this earlier, try to bring in more folks from underrepresented groups? And actually, what does that even mean to you, the term underrepresented or I'll say it, the D word, diversity? Oh, what does it no. mean to you in, in terms of... In terms, uh, in terms of hiring to you, you know, now that you are in this leadership mm-hmm. position, trying to build something in fintech, which is traditionally a very, you know, white yeah, space, bank, banking, right? finance, well, even just tech in general. Is that I'm trying to do things a little bit different, where I'm reaching out in spaces where you don't necessarily find designers. Um, mm. if it's <laughs> you're going to get the same thing if you're going to the same places. So I try mm-hmm. to yep. look and foster and mentor. I mean, the work that. Um, friend of mine, Maurice Woods, doing with the Interact Project, where the Interact Project is working with um, black and brown kids in the inner city here in uh, the Bay Area. And I think in, um, um, sorry, LA as well, too. He's fostering the next generation. I think that's where folks need to start doing. They need to look, look to the next generation. But they also need to look at designers now. Like, you know, we have a lot of ageism here in the Bay Area. Yeah, um, we do. There's, there are a lot of qualified people who are a bit displaced because, sorry, we don't need a graphic designer anymore because we don't do pay stubs. Like, oh, wait a minute. Like, these people have a lot of skills that can be retrofitted mm-hmm. to be working in other spaces. But, yeah. you know, it's like, no, not a 20, 20 some year old, you know, white kid from Minnesota. We're, we're not necessarily looking at you. And, <laughs> Oh shit! Sorry. Well, I'm doomed. Oh, <laughs> sorry, Jonathan. Twenty-year-olds from Minnesota who are listening right now. I, yeah, I shot, apologize. Shots fired. Shots fired. <laughs> yeah, I know. Sorry. I'm not trying to diss on the Midwest. You know, some of my best friends are from there. Um, no, I love yeah, I love Chicago. But it's it's definitely uh, we have our stereotypes of what tech mm-hmm. should be, what designer should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And these are people who are creating things for everyone. So why doesn't <laughs> design look like everyone? So right. I'm. As a design leader, as someone who's in charge of hiring, I look very carefully not at the work, but the people who and how you're bringing it mm-hmm. to me yeah. and who you are. I don't look for a cultural fit or 
you know, a culture ad. I'm, I'm just like, yo, if this person can uh, walk in with a different perspective that I have not thought about mm-hmm. that'll mm-hmm. really help our customers and help the people that we're designing these products for, hell yeah. Sure, yeah. they don't know how to use Sketch or Figma. Let's, let's teach them. Oh, they may not necessarily have a refined way of doing something. Let's give them the opportunity and teach them on the job. Because the only way you're going to get this is if you actually invest in it. So I'm all about making the investment as much as, much as I can. I just love the fact that you're mentioning lived experience, which to me is yeah. not the demographic thing of, you know, are you black? Are you white? Are you Asian? How can we do, do this mix so that the front page of the of the company's homepage looks good, right? So uh, this Benetton ad, which is totally fake. Um, and again, this is like a journey that's going to take a long time. It's not going to be fixed by the time this pandemic is over. You know, like these, everything is like kind of tied together right now. But um, when, when you do hire these people in um, and you're the design leader in their life, do you do how do you kind of help them with integrating into the corporate world? You know, do they do they come to you with uh, for help on overt or even covert bias? Um, do they experience that? How do you mentor them on that? It's not funny you should ask that question. Um, some of my team actually came to me about microaggressions, mm-hmm. and. They were a little, um, so worried about bringing it up, but I, you know, I was like, dude, that's actually something that's very important to me. Cause I, having been subject right. to it, <laughs> still subject to it, mm-hmm. um, it's something that I want to address immediately. Um, yeah. but in terms of mentoring, um, helping, you know, there, there are designers I work with on a mentorship. Um, I've, I've been mentoring since I've. I don't know, since I've, <laughs> I can remember. Um, if I can help someone or give some love back to someone to help them with their next position or to step up in some way, I, I do that. Um, but there's some designers I say to them, you know, have you considered learning a bit about how business works? Or have you learned about maybe taking a speech, public speaking class? Hmm. Um, have you considered taking a writing class? Because yeah. those are some of the things that folks in business look at. And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's not about just design. It's like, no, it's people in business only know people in business. They look at design a little bit differently. So if you can actually, I don't know, somewhat bring yourself closer to that, to Mm -hmm, understand how mm -hmm. business works, to make a presentation in a way that a, you know, a corporate person can understand. (laughs) It's only going to help your cause because design is trying to bring a lot of people along. And the only way you get that is get buy-in. And your, uh, your CFO isn't really going to care about, um, <laughs> you know, what colors you chose or why you chose those colors or, mm-hmm. you know, how that layout is. Your CFO is like, well, uh, how are we going to make money off of this? Um, right. How have you invested your time and money and resources that we're paying you? And how is that going to make us, you know, more successful? So if you can walk into that meeting with the, the key things that those folks are looking for, it's only going to bring more success. So I try to pass that on because no one actually taught me that when mm-hmm. I was getting into this game. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I was, I only found that out by actually sitting down with people on this other side of the table who were telling me what was important to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, oh, okay. All right. You know, and I would sit in their strategy sessions and learn from them. Um, and that's just made me a better designer because I could solve problems for them as well too. 
And I would teach them actually about design. It's like, here's why you use this font over that font. And here's what um, a, a, a clear page looks like. And here's why you don't use this photo. And just things like that made them, made their, actually their individual personal lives even better. Mm-hmm. So I try to teach, I guess, in a 360 way. If I'm, if there's an opportunity, I will take it and pass on what I know. So if we could dig in more into your team coming to you about the microaggressions, is there something more you could say about that? And how did you deal with something that was maybe a little bit more overt in terms of being racist or providing some sort of uncomfortable culture for your team? How did you deal with that or navigate that? Um, I haven't had any major ones at my current position, um, but in the past, I've I've tried to educate as much as possible. It's like some people just don't understand what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, hey, having that individual conversation with, with that person, um, passing on what I know, um, finding out where the microaggressions are coming mm-hmm. from, and maybe speaking to you know, the higher ups, whether the head of HR, and say, hey, there's some education that needs to happen here. Um, here's, a, here's something that's lacking. And sometimes it's really about self-care too. It's like that, that's an important part of it. It's like if you're getting hammered every day from something that maybe out of my control, maybe out of my leader's mm-hmm. control, then it's how can I help somebody build up their resilience so they can do better and so they can fight it off or fight it in their own way. It's interesting that you said that because I remember working with Danny and our CEO person mm-hmm. would say some offensive, unintentional, but offensive uh, things in the all hands. Oh, yeah. And town halls. And Danny would just call them on it openly, mm-hmm. right? And I thought it was really, you know, maybe we're not going to make a lot of progress in, with this person or maybe even structurally or systemically. But being an ally and saying, I hear you and I'm addressing this and I'm in the leadership position here and I'm, I, I am empowered to speak up on your behalf and I will and I have, it really is amazing for a team member to see, Yeah, you know, just to see that behavior modeled and maybe you don't get the results that you want, but at least it creates an environment which people feel safe who are not as empowered yeah i feel safer and i'm not even on your team (laughs) yeah i absolutely feel safe just listening you talk about that like i'm like yeah okay thanks dre's got my back dre's got my back okay i I feel it's important that your leader has your back um yeah Mm -hmm. it's (laughs) it's such a basic thing to ask for (laughs) but I know what it's like to be an employee. I know what it's like to be fresh out of school. I've been, I've totally through all of these things. I think it's very, it's very giving and very generous to bring that into a company and corporate culture. So uh, on behalf of all of us, <laughs> thank you again. Thank you. That's awesome. I'm, I'm still learning. We kind of get caught up sometimes in forgetting about the joy and the positivity that our cultures all bring. Let, let's let's all try to start from a place of like positivity instead of saying all right all these bad things are happening let's just kind of like or like really be all mired in this <laughs> negative kind oh of God. like let's build structures yeah. let's make sure we have five black people on this team like um yeah all right there, there are certain things that have to be done but also remember that everyone has a lot of joy and love and they're all humans and like let's try to learn and educate from a place of that what would you say to a younger designer starting out that doesn't have as many connections or is maybe a person of color and they're feeling scared or having a large dose of imposter syndrome and they're afraid to reach out and they're afraid to 
talk to those connections and get those doors open, what would you say to that person? That's hard. Um, I'd say this. Uh, you know, when I first moved here to the Bay, I actually sat down with, that's how I met Spring. Um, I sat down with her <laughs> and for four hours, three, maybe three hours, she told me her journey of working at certain companies. And, and I apologize. <laughs> oh, I honestly, having that dose of truth, it actually helped sharpen what mm. I needed to do. Um, and so I was starting from scratch when I moved here. I had to build yeah. up the network and start start all over. So yeah. it isn't easy, to say, to pick up the phone and say, hey, or just email somebody on LinkedIn like, sure. um, to start their relationship. I, I started out building my network by attending events that were important to me. Um, and I, I made a good friend here um, through volunteering with the AIGA. Um, mm -hmm. He turned out to be a Jamaican designer. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and a designer? <laughs> what what you know and you know and and he he put me on some some of his friends and some of his network and right. it started it started what six years ago it started mm -hmm. with you know sitting with spring and spring like yo like dropping some knowledge um <laughs> i'm not a shy person I'm, I'm quite an extrovert but yeah making building relationships isn't something that you do overnight it takes time Definitely keep that in mind as I continue to progress in my career as well. Um, I thought you were like the top of your game, man. I mean, I do what I do. I never claim to be. Top I, of the I don't. Game, I never Chuck. claim. Actually, I'm starting at, at a startup where I have to like build a team. When I'd love to talk to you about that, but we don't have to do that on the <laughs> that's, podcast because we are. That's a fun thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, well, we had a couple rounds of funding, but um, after right. that, there'll be team building. Awesome. Yeah, but we don't. That's we don't we're already so long. But so everyone who comes into the podcast, we have a lightning round. We'd love to end the interview with. If that's all right with you. A lightning, lightning round. round. Oh yeah. So well, as a listener, you guys usually do the the, the drag session where you drag uh, stuff in and you, <laughs> you start talking <laughs> oh. about. That, that's actually one of my favorite parts of the show. Quite honestly, me too. Like, you know. <laughs> I love doing that. I, I tune in for that part. <laughs> Well, that's why it's at the end. But yeah, I'll I'll, I'll do the lightning round. I'll do I'll do the lightning round. I'm I'm not sure how good I'll be, but you know, let's do it. We're all learning together. So, question number one, Dre, what's your favorite place in the Bay Area to get a good cup of boba? So I don't really have a spot, quite honestly, to say it's the spot for boba. Equal opportunity bobaist. Exactly. I mean, the first okay. time I had boba was in Taiwan, and I don't think I've ever had it as good. Ah, that, that would you should have said okay. Taiwan. You'd be like, actually, my favorite spot is in Taiwan. Yeah, exactly. And we'd be like, oh, like, oh, <laughs> oh, I fly to Taiwan on the weekends. And, you know, some boba. Yeah, yeah. Well, as a man from Taiwan, let me tell you that that warms my heart and my belly. So thank you. Oh, you best, haven't heard best food on the planet. I'm just saying. You haven't heard the episode where Danny goes off about Taiwanese boba. It's a drag and drop, and it's long. Last year's last episode, I we're dragging the boba guys because there are all kinds of shenanigans happening in that company, and it's just so stupid. You can I hear know, it. I, I feel you on that. You just gotta love it when you know a business takes authentic, like ethnic, your culture, and starts selling it in a way where you're like, wait, hold up, what? You know? When did you go to Taiwan? Ninety-eight. Actually, 98, 99, yeah. That's last time I was in Taiwan. 
Yeah, uh, you're right. It's the best food on the planet. In Taiwan, they know how to eat in that fucking country. Oh yeah, no doubt. I think every country knows how to eat, <laughs> except for America, <laughs> which is like everything is just like a garbage can, and everyone just eats out of it. That's that's my opinion. Oh no! I mean, I mean Ireland was Ireland was like uh, it was okay, but it was like uh, the well, the beer was good. Yeah, exactly. You don't go to Ireland for the food. I mean, come on, right? Maybe some no, of the sausages, definitely. but you go for you go for a, a proper pint of Guinness. Oh god, it was so good! I couldn't keep up with our coworkers. They were drinking so much, and I was like, "I can't." My BM, my BMI is not able to keep up with you. Like literally, the alcohol was soaking. I couldn't. Thank you, Dre, for coming by and dropping so much knowledge. Yeah. And giving me in the first three minutes, I was like, pow, pow, pow. "My mind is blown." <laughs> I need to look all this up. Thank you so much. You're incredible. You're an incredible person. And a wonderful, just just wonderful person in general, and a great design leader. I I wish I was on your team. You sound mm. super freaking dope, like um, just the warmest and insightful and empathetic person. And I think that's one of the key aspects of being a great designer is empathy. So thank you so much for dropping by today. Thank you so much. For, thank you so much to be both for doing this podcast. Mm. Actually. I love your opinions and I love your perspective. Mm. I think we need more of that, um, especially in this design community. So I'm so blessed to be here and thank you both again. Thank you. All right. For this week's drag and drop, it's going to be a serious one. Mine is the experience of a privatized medical platform that prioritizes profits over patients. Okay, a little background. So this week I'm helping my family out with some medical speed bumps that we're going through. And it's been incredibly taxing and emotionally draining. But on top of everything, we're trying to shuttle medical information between three different doctors and a hospital room and an ER. And none of it is getting to the places in an efficient way. Literally, the nurse at the records at, from the hospital told me, you know, it's better if you just pay money for us to give you a copy, and then you just physically drive the paper and the CD, because there's like CAT scans and whatever, literally yeah. just drive it over to the other doctor. And my jaw was like hitting the floor. So I'm, I'm a part of Kaiser, and it's incredible. Like, call it what you will, like a communist hospital <laughs> or like socialized medicine, whatever, but it's... I, I needed it to know about my uh, vaccinations or, or when the last time mm-hmm. I had my shot, whatever. I just pull it up on my app. It's all in one place. And it, all of my information I know is safe and it's handled. And most importantly, it's findable. People know what's wrong because they know they have a full record. It is crazy to me that in, in this country that we allow laws, right? So Spring gave me some great background on this. The Well, you have to thank Obama. Thank you, Obama. Thank you. For doing well, I thank him for so many things. Because of Obamacare, which is you know, of a Republican name. But anyway, so because of that, apparently before they, the ACA Health Information Technological for Economic Clinical Health, also known as high tech, before that was put into effect, only 12% of hospitals had this system, which is called EPIC. Uh, and now about 95% of hospitals have it. And I know this, thank you, Spring, her wife works in medicine. And apparently even behind the scenes, it is like a trash fire. 
Like the yes, UX, a total dumpster fire, right? The UX is yeah, horrible. Everything that is the date that data transfer is completely proprietary. So you can't train other doctors or other professionals, and you can't get the information out. It's basically like this ultimate like walled garden sort of situation. Well, Epic is a company that's like the mafia of like like electronic health records. Right. They were founded. Only they know. They were founded in 1979. This woman <laughs> has been in there as a CEO for 40 years and she is now worth $4.5 billion. And she, uh, I think refuses to ever step down or I mean, like God, yeah. God bless you uh-huh. lady. Go, go girl. But <laughs> yeah, she leaned in real hard. Uh, I mean, she's leaned in <laughs> fallen all the way over. And, so apparently, according to Meredith uh, Spring's wife, the, there's shortcuts. You can copy and paste diagnosis. And apparently this is sort of because of the scale that it's operating on, right? It's, it has, what, 250 million records, 250 million people records. That's like most of the country, every, every hospital. Yeah, in the United States. Right? Yeah. And because of that, at this kind of scale, when you're copying and pasting shortcuts for diagnosis, apparently it makes systematic bias actually worse than it already is in, in medicine. So personal my personal experience has been really 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 disheartening and it's actually fucking really scary because i'm not a fucking doctor again not that kind of asian so for me to put my trust in our medical systems Mm -hmm. and to know that oh my god it's fully privatized and it's completely for profit is fucking scary okay so i don't have it's so scary Well, it's really scary because when my dad was sick, I I had to actually learn every single thing that was happening to him. And I I named myself a junior doctor because I'm a designer. How proud were they? I should not be. (laughs) They're like, oh, fuck. (laughs) We're doomed now. (laughs) They're like, why did we let you have those art classes? (laughs) Can you draw a stethoscope? Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm so sorry about it. This is happening to you, oh. and I think it's very scary that the way the healthcare is set up, you know, and Epic is epically bad. Yeah, I mean, like, imagine cover California, but I don't know, worse because it's even mm-hmm. even older. I can't even imagine. I'm excited to see more. I'll talk to Meredith about it uh, later privately. Yeah. So that's mine. Well, secrets, <laughs> healthcare secrets. So. My drag and drop this week is also about evil design. And the reason I know about Epic because I saw it on a screen at Kaiser <laughs> and it scared me. And I was like, it was like from like 1991, yeah. like before the internet was created. But um, there's another aspect of design, which is, which I call um, evil design. And in, in the in, in industry, we call it dark, dark patterns, mm-hmm. right? In, in product design. But here is this like straight up, weird data visualization so what happens is state of florida and the state of georgia both have and all these states have covid uh dashboards from the department of public health except the state of georgia has everything in a shade of blue except one (laughs) color that's red Mm -hmm. that's like the highest Mm -hmm. right so the color scheme is like from white to sky blue to tiffany blue to twilight blue to midnight blue and then it's red (laughs) And the numbers keep on changing because more and more people keep on getting infected. So the numbers increase and then the blue stays exactly the same. <laughs> so you can never, the map looks exactly if 10,000 people have it or or 5,000 people have it, which is not data visualization, which is totally evil. And I talk about this because I'm like, there is a designer involved because actually the site is really nice. 
the CSS, the HTML, everything is nice. Mm-hmm. I'm just like, there is a person who is responsible for this and they're just letting it happen. Just like a freaking Nazi sympathizer uh, mm-hmm. just like saying this is okay. And, you know, the same thing, Florida tried to do the same thing and their data visualization scientist is named Rebecca Jones and she quit um, in protest because it was immoral. And we have as designers, I think, I believe, an ethical obligation to be honest and not just make things look good. Especially like that is the key. Now. Yeah. Especially for data design, where you're actually communicating information that people need to make life and death death decisions. Again, we're talking about you know data that informs mm-hmm. your life and your healthcare. So since this is a podcast, I'll just describe this a little bit. They're just changing the numbers on the legend of this graph so that the red doesn't get any bigger. <laughs> yes. First of all, that's stupid. How stupid do you think we it's are? So <laughs> Pretty stupid. Uh, I mean, he stole the election. So, yeah, you know, yeah. he's not even like the properly elected person. It's no, it's the legends. It's the number keeps on rising. But it's just, I guess you have to see it. But on top of it, if you also look at like the Florida Department of Public Health one, mm. you're like, oh, okay, this is nice, you know. And then you go to the one that Rebecca Jones, the person who was fired, she started her own public dashboard for public information, and she's like has like thirty data points, totally like ten times more data mm-hmm. than the public mm-hmm. from the published one from the government. And I'm like, what the hell, like? This is evil, okay? Because what she is presenting is data in a way that's showing how bad things are. And what these departments of public health are showing something that is mollifying the public and saying that everything is okay or we're in charge and every and I understand the the um the need to not freak people out and part of government is to like make sure people don't run for the exit and stampede and hurt each other, but also like these are lies and you're using design to lie to people about the seriousness of the situation we're under. And like you said, these are life and death decisions that we have to make. And these are life and death data points. I mean, literally number of dead Mm -hmm. 5,000, you know, that's real. That's, that's a real number of dead people. And you're just sitting here as a designer helping others lie. You have the, you have the moral responsibility to quit your job the end and that's this week's show thank you so much dre for stopping by and sharing your amazing amazing experience and insight thank you so much for listening if you have any questions comments or a topic you want covered please email us at dragondroppod at gmail.com if you love what you heard please share with your friends rate review and subscribe it would really help us grow the conversation All right, see you next time.